I think I'd struggle with a, a dog that had longer legs than I did, but um, and that's why pugs, I'm, I'm physically suited to pugs. I, I stayed with a friend who had some pugs this summer and it was like, yeah, no, these are my dogs. <laughs> I could do pug, do pug very well. Well, welcome to the Religion and Popular Culture podcast, where we talk about religion, popular culture, and everything in between. How's that for an opening? I'm pretty proud of it. Um, So I am here today with Eleanor Course. and so your research is... Well, tell me about your research. I'm a, I'm a PhD student. I'm studying at Leeds Trinity University, and I'm looking at uh, the intersection of uh, religion, particularly theology, and culture in Hull 2017, because this year Hull is the UK's city of culture. And um, I thought that's a really exciting opportunity to explore Christians' theologies of culture and what they understand by what culture is and what they think God thinks culture is and whether God likes culture or not. That's a lot of questions. Yeah. <laughs> so before we get into it, what I find interesting is the first time I met you mm. was at the Fandom and Religion Conference in Leicester where you were talking about fables. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I'm just a comics geek. I, I really I got into comics really through web comics um, back in the early 2000s, and it took me a long time actually to get into reading um, hard copy comics because I was really put off by your sort of cape. <laughs> Capes, you know, cape comics, you know, Batman and Superman and all that. And so I think, like for a lot of women, it was fables that, that drew me in, you know, the sort of more, um, the, the, the comics where narratives were really strong. And um, so, yeah, so um, that was the first conference I ever attended and everybody was so welcoming and friendly and really supportive. And I gave a paper on the character of Flycatcher in Fables and looking at um, how Flycatcher sort of is a retelling of Christ within the Fables universe. So how did you go from (laughs) studying fables to studying whole? Well, it's all culture. It's all how people um, express faith, play with ideas of faith in their everyday lives. Um, I'm a comics fan. I was employed, uh, sadly not to be a fan of comics, but as um, communications officer from the Church of England in the York and Hull and Middlesbrough area. And so I'd worked in Hull for years, and as a city, it's really fascinating. Um, And so when it was announced that it was going to be City of Culture, I thought, oh, this is such an exciting opportunity to explore... um, contextual theology essentially what do people on the ground understand um, what is their their lived theology what's their you'd almost call it indigenous theology um, that arises from a place and is expressed in different ways um, and I think I, I love Hull very much um, and it's got a bit of a um, well put it like this when it was announced that Hull was going to be the UK city of culture I think people kind of went Hull what culture Um, yeah I remember being on Twitter at the time and you know I've got a few collected tweets from from the few days around the the announcement saying you know uh, you know Hull city of culture it must be that 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 open tub of yogurt that I left on Ferrand's Avenue (laughs) that sort of thing Um, you know what's what's next Bolton capital of fine dentistry that sort of thing so you know a lot of real sarcasm around it Um, uh, often from the people of Hull itself but particularly um, from people who'd probably never been to Hull before um, it was, you know, it's it sort of constantly hits the the, the least favourite place in the UK to live, um, 
And I think, and the, the really sad thing is that actually that's because it's a city that's been deprived in lots of ways. Um, it's the big blow for Hull was the loss of the fishing industry in the 1970s. And that really changed um, the, the economic uh, culture of Hull and also Hull's identity. It had always been a fishing town. And then what do you do if you're a fishing town but there's no fishing? So I think it suffered a lot of identity at yeah, that place. Yeah, I was going to... Because as, as somebody who is not from yeah. this country, I have learned... I learned about the reputation of Hull far before going yeah, there. Yeah, um, Which I find interesting because, particularly because it's in the north and even yeah. other northern cities, cities had this, you know, attitude towards yeah. Hull. So it yeah. wasn't just a South North no, thing. No, it's not just, no. Um, and so if, I just, I guess I wondered why Hull specifically, yeah. when there were so many other cities that yeah. were kind of hit hard. Yeah, yeah. I think, I think it's partly, you know, it, there's a, um, I think its economy was hit before a lot of the other UK towns. When you think of places like Sheffield, um, you'd think of, you know, a lot of the deprivation coming with the mining closures in the 1980s. Well, actually, Hull sort of experienced deprivation a decade or okay, so okay. before that. And I think also its geography plays a huge part um, in people's attitude to it because it is, people say, it's at the end of the road, it's at the end of the line. Um, you know, you don't go to Hull unless you're going to Hull. You will never drive right, okay. through Hull because it's right out on the east coast. Hull is not on the line to anywhere. It's at the end of the line. I never thought about it in that yeah. regard before. And it, that brings um, positives and negatives. It means it's quite isolated. Um, in the interviews that I've been doing with... Um, primarily church leaders, um, they bring up that there's still a degree of racial tension that perhaps might not be expected in a city in the year 2017, you know, that some cities might have gone through decades before. Well, actually, perhaps because immigration's happened a lot later in Hull, because it is so out of the way, okay, yeah. some of those tensions are only emerging or being, being resolved, being played out um, a bit later than other cities. And this end-of-the-line feeling also gives... Its geography's lovely. You are right out on the edge of the North Sea. So everything's very flat. You've got um, big skies. The Humber stretching out is very, very flat. So there is this sense of simultaneously being at the end of the line, but also this sort of wide open space there as well. It's a bit of a... It's like the end of the line of civilization as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's interesting in my interviews with people how much geography comes up. And I really wasn't expecting that. I was expecting people to talk about... Well, one of my, my, one of my questions that I'm asking people is uh, what do they think culture is? And people tend to say either one of two things, that culture is... Um, you know, things like opera or art or music or something like that, or culture is the way we do things around here. But what I hadn't expected was how geography plays a part in people's understandings of culture. And that's probably just my naivety, my, my, the presuppositions that I came into it with. But they talk about Hull having no horizon because it's so flat. Once you're out there, there's no hills around you. You know, you're in uh, you're in Durham. You've got lots of hills around you. You, you. you know, you're in other bits of the north. You've got the, the you know the Pennines or whatever. Um, you don't really have the, the whole landscape's very flat. This end of the line, and so they talk about the church leaders I've been interviewing talk about people not looking up. 
There's no hills to look up to, no, you know, no, no beautiful landscapes around you. Everything's very flat. And they tend, uh, several of them said this, they said people in Hull look down. And they uh, talked about that metaphorically in terms of the sort of um, context of deprivation that a lot of people live in. There's nothing to raise their hopes, nothing to raise their spirits. It's very downward looking. But also spiritually, they connected the landscape with a spiritual sense, saying, you know, that people look down spiritually and what they wanted to do was try and raise people's gaze and encourage them to look up. And one church leader I spoke to actually um, organises, you know, day trips for people. And he said he works in a very deprived area, and, and particularly his work is a lot with um, people uh, with addictions, alcohol addiction, and drug addiction. And he takes them out on day trips, and they go away from Hull, and then they come back. And he said that the going away is, you know, an interesting day out, but coming back and allowing people to view Hull afresh and view their own situations afresh um, was was very powerful. So that geography is 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 it's intruded, not intruded. It's it's entered into my work in a way I really hadn't expected it to. Well, that's really interesting. And I know that in in your talk that you gave. Oh, so I guess I should mention that the second time... Well, the second time I met you was actually at the BASR. Yes. A year later. Yes. I feel like I'm only meeting you once a year. Yeah. <laughs> at conferences. It, it was a shock to, to discover that we both exist outside a conference oh, yeah, setting, yeah, to be I honest. I think this is the it first was, yeah. time that we've met twice in the same year. It's, it's, I don't know what's going to happen as a consequence. Um, but... So the second time I chose this beat be at the BASR, but at the yeah. third time was yeah. very recently yeah. in Hull. Yes. Um, yeah. Which was also my first time yeah. in Hull. Yeah. I think a lot of people's yes. first time in exactly, Hull. Exactly, because that you don't there. go there unless you're going there. You don't, <laughs> exactly. you know, it's not like, oh, I'm I'm driving to so and so, such a place, I'll stop off here. It's it's you go to Hull if you're going to Hull. And what I oh, what I found interesting from the people at the conference yeah. and, and what they were saying um, about Hull and the people in Hull was they talked about even people from other areas in the north talked about how friendly everyone was mm. um, which I thought was fun, that. was yeah. a very um, pleasant way because I guess you're only you're always here the kind of the downsides, right? Yeah. And the fact yeah. that it's downtrodden. Yeah. And I think yeah. even yeah. this was coming across in some of what you were saying yeah. earlier everyone's kind of talking about the bad parts but yeah. the fact that when you do look up it yeah. actually isn't that It bad. actually... There is so much that's wonderful about it, and I think that's what City of Culture's done. And it's really interesting. My, my research, um, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm... My data I'm gathering through two interviews, one at the beginning of 2017, so I've conducted that with 20 people, and then I'm conducting interviews with them at the end of 2017. So I'm really interested in what they're going to say about what City of Culture did, whether that changed any of their understandings of what culture is, what God might think about culture. But they all felt that City of Culture was a chance to shine a spotlight or hold up a magnifying glass on the best bits of Hull. On, um, and so when we talked about what those best bits of Hull were, it was interesting. They wanted the story of Hull's suffering to be heard. I think they felt that, you know, that, that closure of the fishing industry and going back, um, there were three themes of sort of suffering that they brought out in these interviews. One was the ending of the fishing industry. One was the Blitz in the Second World War. Hull was the second most bombed city in the UK outside Which London. I, I don't think a lot of people there A lot were, of people don't weird. know about that. And also... Um, around the time of the, the fish, just after the war and before the, the fishing industry uh, declined, a lot of people from the traditional fishing communities and docking communities were um, 
uh, moved out to new estates on the outer edges of the city, part of the, the slum clearances, which were common to a lot of northern cities. Um, so you've got this dispersal of communities at the same time when just after the bombing and just before the fishing community uh, declined. So this real sort of struggle. So they wanted these stories of struggle to be heard and understood and recognised. Um, but they also wanted City of Culture to shine a light on, I think, the people of Hull, actually. You've touched on it there, that the sense that these people are good people, that they've been through so much suffering and so much difficulty. But despite that, um, they're really good people. Come here. I think, I think the idea that a lot of the City of Culture stuff, the, the, you know, the, the, the team that were organising it from the council and, and beyond, um, their first sort of slogan was back to ours. And that sense nice of one. coming, you know, yeah. meeting people, discovering, um, discovering the the character of Hull, the culture of Hull, and and it was really interesting because in my in my interviews from that that first interview before City of Culture started, you've got this real tension between what the church leaders are saying. They are expressing this history of suffering that that's making people look down, that make people feel they don't have any horizons. And yet also they're saying how great Hull is. And they're really affirming of its culture. And this was what really surprised me. I was expecting that a lot of the more sort of traditionally conservative or evangelical churches um, might be very critical of Hull's culture. You know, that there's a culture of drugs, there's a culture of alcohol, as there is in most UK cities. Um, you know, evangelical churches and conservative churches can be very traditionally very critical of culture and seeing it in need of redemption. But those, the people that I spoke to from those churches tended not to be so critical. Uh, there was one church leader who, you know, uh, I was using uh, photos in my interviews to help generate some discussion. And one uh, Pentecostal church leader pointed at a picture of people in Hull and said, um, I see God here, this is God. So they were really affirming of the culture of Hull. And I think one of the arguments that I'm sort of starting to develop is, despite all this suffering, are, and despite all the negative things about Hull, are church leaders really affirming of its culture as a way of enacting a sort of proclaiming or, or, or um, yeah, sort of proclaiming God's love for the city, which is a very downtrodden and despised city, yeah. you know. So it's, it's been an interesting sort of dichotomy. And they use, talking about city of culture itself, they use the word resurrection. No, they identify yeah. city of culture with the possibility of resurrection, that this might turn things around for Hull. That's an extreme need to turn it around yes. because that affirms a death. A death, yes. Which yeah. is a lot more than just a, oh, we're going to get better. Yeah. It's a yeah, yeah. It is in need of, um, yeah, absolute rebirth and not in a, a, a simply economic way, but in a way that is affirming of people, I think. Um, and they were very much... I mean, this is a sort of obviously a, a, a generalisation from 20 interviews, but I did feel there were quite... Um, strong themes coming through that creativity was a way to enable change and obviously people associated creativity and culture very strongly together and they saw creativity was a gift from God on the whole um, but I, again one, one uh, evangelical pastor talking about the um, 
they'd done lots of artwork and creative work with the people that they worked with and he uh, referenced a biblical verse about this would lift people from the ashes and seat them with princes so the idea that people's creative people's own creativity would enable a degree of, of resurrection, of rising from the ashes to be seated with princes, was, um, yeah, I thought uh, immensely affirming of the possibilities of culture. So is there, because I'm assuming that Hull has about the same level of church attendance as the average UK city. It is below the average UK. It is the, the it is the city in the UK which has the lowest percentage of churchgoers. So is... In part of this hope, mm. is there hope from the church leaders that people will return to the to church? church? For some of them, yes, and for some of them, no. Um, and that <laughs> is, I think, where you'd get quite a classic divide between your more liberal churches and your more conservative churches. I suspect the more conservative ones are the ones who are thinking this resurrection for Hull will be born by um, people coming back to church, people finding faith, finding God. The perhaps more liberal or traditional denomination the, the uh, people from those churches that I spoke to um, were perhaps they I think they no they definitely still thought that that resurrection would come from God and by people encountering God but they it couched it in much more much wider terms in terms of people lifting their eyes to a spiritual horizon um, in fact some of them were very um, some of them saying that actually the churches are going to have to notice that this this uh, spiritual uplifting might happen outside of churches actually that god is working within the city and that churches need to stop thinking that god is a preserve of the church that actually god is working in hull and what the churches need to do is go and find where god is working and join in um so there is a bit of a division between you know uh, what that resurrection might look like in terms of the churches so now, in, in regards to the, the stories and, and their yeah. need for these stories to come out, yeah. do they see you as a researcher talking to them as an avenue for this to start kind of questioning your own position yeah. in your research? Or is that a question you haven't even thought of before? It's a question that I've I've not thought of, so thank you. That's a really good one to bear in mind. <laughs> I'm sorry um, to make things more complicated. Yeah, no, it's but... good. All good. Um, uh, my... That's something I do need to examine, but a gut instinct says no. Okay. I think partly because, having worked with a lot of these church leaders for years, I'm just Eleanor, you know, so there was a change in my... I had to right, okay. try and be very explicit about, I'm not your colleague anymore, I am a researcher, I'm somebody right. a bit different. Maybe the relationship has to do with something. But I think that, I think for, the, for a lot of them, I'm somebody, I'm, I'm, it's too simple to have a sort of outsider, insider dichotomy, but I'm somebody known. Right. So I think perhaps that they're... So therefore they're not they're just, talking to you as, as a hope of an avenue, no, but more as a no, way to help you no, out because no, they exact, you. Exactly. Right. Yes, okay. it's more, more doing me a favour than, you know, than feeling I can be of, of, of use, I suspect. And for some of them, they're just not, um, I think, I suspect that a researcher coming alongside them and working with them is quite a new thing for some of them. So it's probably not much expectation of what right. might happen. Um, so uh, I don't know what will happen. But, um, so when you mm. when you go back to do these mm. the second round, yeah. how are you going to be structuring those kind of second round interviews? I'm 
still working that one out. <laughs> uh, the method that I'm using is um, photo elicitation, um, which is uh, the way that I'm using that is um, providing, in the first interview, I provided photographs of Hull that I'd taken. And so when we put those on the table, encourage people to look through them. And then when we, uh, I was asking questions such as, what do you think, rather than just asking straight out, what do you think culture is? I was asking them, you know, could you have a look at a picture and pick me a picture which might represent what culture might mean? And that looking at photos, I found really useful because it breaks down the sort of confrontate any confrontational element of an interview. You're not staring at each other, you know, the, the expert researcher and the, you know, the the, the 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 people whose brains are being picked. You're both looking at the photographs together. You're um, you're allowing them to be the expert to say, you tell me about these. Um, and I'm hoping that some of that will roll over into the second interviews, which I'm, do, what I'm going to be doing, where I'm asking them to take photographs during 2017 of anything that might remind them of God and culture, of where God and culture might meet. How many separated. photographs out of 20 people are you expecting to get? <laughs> If I get 20, I will be delighted. <laughs> I suspect, I, I, I know that some of them will produce loads of photos for me and some of them will entirely forget. Um, so if they forget, that is it's the all right. We can, beast, we can yes. go back and we can look at some of the original photos or just ask them to maybe imagine some pictures from the year that, that spark ideas off. Um, mental pictures. Mental pictures from the year. I won't ask anybody to draw pictures. I think that's a bit, a bit alarming. Oh, God. But... Um, <laughs> But also what worked, again, because you had a bit of that, I, I took loads of photos and I tried not to overwhelm people with these photos in the first interviews. But, you know, so if I was asking the question, is there a photo that might represent what God thinks about culture? Um, for example, um, you know, some of them would pick up 10 pictures and I'd have to say, OK, maybe could we narrow that down to two or three, perhaps? So, um, so yeah, just asking them to be selective. Again, as part of that process of filtering thoughts. And it's interesting, some of them really engaged with it. Some of them, um, I think, were much more verbose than they might have been if I'd asked them questions directly. And there was one or two who were obviously... Um, they'd thought about these sort of things before and they just ignored the photos and just talked to me straight. So, But it was a really useful technique, the photo elicitation. I found it a very good way of um, getting under the skin of some of the issues. Yeah, it probably helps to also just kind of make it less nerve-wracking as well. Yeah. That it's like, yeah. I'm not going to start in on something really complicated. We're just going to look at some pictures. When I, before I, you know, sort of formally started any of this research, I was obviously talking it through with some of the vicars and pastors and ministers that I knew. And I, I you know, they were asking me, so what is it that you're wanting to research? And I talked about theologies of culture. And a, a friend from Hull who's been a church minister for years, said, oh, I don't have any theologies of culture. It, there was this sense of, oh, that sounds like an academic thing. And, uh, you know, this person hadn't been to university, perhaps. So there was yeah. this sense of tension of, oh, that's a big word and I don't know how to articulate it. And then when I, you know, we were just having a chat and I said, well, what do you think God thinks about culture? Oh, and then it all flooded out. And what, to me, what she was describing was a theology of culture, but she wouldn't yeah. put that into such formal language. 
So how, because you've had a relationship with, was it all of the participants no, in the relationship or just some of them? Uh, between a third and a half, I'd say. Okay, how, yeah. for the people that you did know, because mm. this is something that I'm, I'm very curious about in, in regards to, because I also kind of study groups that I'm actively involved in for fun as well. How difficult is it to have a conversation as an interview with somebody that you already have a relationship with it? Is it easier if you don't know them, or is it easier if you do? I honestly found very little difference. Well, that's, that's good. <laughs> um, now, the hard bit for me is reflecting on, well, why didn't I find any difference? What is at play in, with the ones that I know, and what's at play when I didn't I think it helps that I'm a chatterbox I'll just talk <laughs> so uh, you know in the sort of the, the personal level I'm I find it very the, the interviewing people that I didn't know just as equally easy as the people I did know the thing I had to stop myself doing with the people that I knew was referencing things that we might have done three or four years ago oh yeah like this when we did the, yeah no, try and keep it on the phone you know on the on the present um but I think another thing about that was using the photos. Because you are you're coming back to this this set of, of, of visual data each time and asking the same questions with the same set of images and asking people to look through those and you know see what ideas that might spark off. Um, was very much a leveller in terms of um, it generated so much conversation that it didn't matter to the people that um, I didn't know. I found their answers were flowing just as freely as the people I'd known for. Where did you seven find or eight these years. photos? I took them in Hull. Oh, I you took, took them. I took my I took my Canon camera down to Hull for a couple of days and just went everywhere and snapped things which I thought might be reflective of Hull's culture or an or a, a spiritual dimension of culture. Um, and that's got its own inherent problems in it because yes, I, was about to ask, there's a I am presenting of... my understandings of culture within that. You can't, you know, the, the lens, yeah. uh, the camera, the lens is, is selective. It shows what I think culture is. Um, so what I try to do to sort of um, balance some of that out was um, use a great deal of photos have a large selection and my initial thoughts were I'll just give them 10 photos and we can look through that it didn't work it became too narrow a field that field of vision as it were was too narrow so what I tried to do was um, uh, try and widen that field to different areas of Hull not just the city centre but go out into the outer estates um, not just um, uh, physical things but also have symbolic things so um, one of the images that I took um, which people kept referring to was a flower you know so they talked about culture blossoming and you know and, and there was another flower behind a fence and so people talked about that one oh it's like culture can't blossom here you know they, those two images the sort of more symbolic ones were ones that people used a lot but there's also within the, the sort of practice of photo elicitation there's the idea that actually giving people images which they are not familiar with, which aren't the ones they would take, helps open up that a frame of reference, as it were. Um, in the reading that I was doing before I did my interviews, there was one researcher who'd done a lot of work in the US in the 1960s, and um, they were trying to you know, encourage farmers to think about, um, to talk about their, 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 their relationship with the land. 
and um, the photographs that he'd given them just weren't generating any discussion. The discussion was very pat. Um, and he wondered, actually, if it was the type of photograph he'd given them. He's, he, he said this is just like what they'd see in farm magazines. So he started using aerial photos or historic photos, photos that images that they weren't familiar with, and that broke their sort of um, expectations of what they... Uh, I think widening the sphere of vision might be a way of looking at that that sort of breaks the frames of reference to think differently because you're given something different. So I tried to take bits of angles of things that might not appear on the front of a tourist brochure and all, you know, try and get a different angle of things. As someone who who doesn't live in Hull, that you have, because I I find this from being, in in a much broader sense, being... You know, an American coming to the UK, I often make comments on British culture and people go, oh, it's not really British culture. And I'm like, I think you're wrong uh, because it's easier to see it yes. from an outsider coming yes. in to use the very easy yes. dichotomy. Yeah. But, yeah. you know, is it to find those kind of things that broke the mold? It was probably easier to do that because you weren't a resident. While if you were a resident, you would take pictures Just of a f- kind of common thing. Yeah, of, your, of, of the things that you know well, your neighbourhood. So... Um yeah, yeah. Perhaps it's it's it, it, that's an area of the research that. Um, well, it's like a form of yeah. almost autoethnography in a sense, yes, where you have is. to be really reflexive yeah, of, exactly. of what it was that you did and what you were thinking Why, at that time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and how yeah. that impacted stuff. Which I mean, yeah. when you do field work, no matter what it is that you're doing, you kind of have to do to some extent. Yeah. But it. I mean, this is I think is a much more visual yes. example yes. Yeah. of, of yeah. you know yeah. how that impacts yes. yeah. your research. Yeah. Yeah. And how people play off it as well actually. There's um, rejection is really interesting as well. When people would look at my photos and go, well there's nothing there that reminds me of this. And so that was equally as exciting. Wow. Okay. Because then you say, oh, okay, why was that? And one of the questions that I, I did ask with a few of them didn't work with everybody, um, but you know, if, you know, if we've got all these photos spread out, and you know, they pick two or three that remind them of culture or what God might think of culture, um, to say why didn't you pick the others? Why were those ones not relevant to you? Yeah. And sometimes people came back with a very prosaic of answer of, well, you only asked me to pick two or three. So, you know, but, so <laughs> it's a great quote to throw into exactly. <laughs> and then some of them were. You know, they, they knew why they'd selected these and then asking them to think why they'd rejected the other ones provoked even more thoughts about, oh, well, this is, you know, this is a, an example of physical culture and, you know, the buildings, that's not Hull's culture. Hull's culture is about the people. And so asking them right. what didn't work for them was just as, as, as revelatory as what, what did remind them of something or spark ideas of. So how, because... Just more pragmatically yes. speaking. Yeah. Because this is a PhD yes. topic. So you technically only have 100,000 words. Yes. Um, and then if you were to, say, publish this afterwards, it's almost even less. Yes. Because publishers aren't going to take a manuscript of 100,000 yes. words. Um, so how, how are you going about paring all of this down? The, have you thought about the- <laughs> From someone equally in this position, I would love to know. <laughs> the very honest answer is no. I, 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 I've thought about it, and I thought I'm going to deal with that later. later. That's that's future Eleanor's problem. <laughs> I'll just keep asking. 
asking questions. Third year problem. Right now we're in second year problems. <laughs> um, yes, that's going to be an issue. Is 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 packing all of this it, in? I mean, it is um, a, a good issue to have. It is, and and it may simply be that actually I have to be really selective and assume that if my thesis examiners want to read up on the details of photo elicitation, they can do so themselves. <laughs> um, but, you know, to really focus on um, the results that this has generated, I right, think yeah. that's what I've really got to focus on and the theologies emerging from it. So in whole, mm. generally speaking, mm. for these 20 people, mm. what does God think of culture? On the whole, overall, God loves culture. God often is the, um, the culture is a gift from God. Um, culture is very much tied in with creativity and community. And those are gifts from God to enable people to flourish. And this was another bit of my research that I was not expecting. The number of people who came up with culture be as a, as, a, as a something, whether it's the, the products of culture like art or music or the, the, the lived reality of the way things are here, my participants tended to say that God gives people culture to enable them to flourish and that Hull had been not allowed to flourish economically, socially, You've got the, the bedroom tax and, and cuts on benefits, so Hull has not been allowed to flourish. Um, and they, they saw God as being very affirming of culture and God wanting the people of Hull to flourish and culture as a means by which they could do that. So you've got people, the theologies which I think are being expressed are essentially liberation theologies, which says that God has a preferential option for the poorest in society. These are the theologies that came out of South America in the 1970s in particular. Um, And I think one of the questions for me in my next round of interviews is to ask your understanding of culture where do you think that comes from do you think other people in your denomination would share that or would they think differently because I think for those sort of a lot of the more um, liberal Anglicans and your Methodists and the Roman Catholics that would be you know there is the strands of liberation theology within those denominations but it's really not as common in some of the more conservative and evangelical theologies and yet the church yeah. leaders in Hull seem to be expressing a lot of those themes. Now, I think there's a degree of self-selection in this, well, yeah. that people who come to Hull and choose to minister in Hull tend to have what they would describe as a heart for the poor. They really want to live and work among... You know, there's a, one of my interviewees you know, made sure that he lived on the estate that he was working in. He didn't want to live in a nice house and work on a really rough estate. You know, he was going to be living among them among the people that he, he cared for. Um, but I don't think that's always common in all denominations. So, Well, it's also like probably very dependent on the place in that regard. Yeah. You know, if you're... I mean, this is I'm not specialty and church leaders in general, let alone, you know, specific ones. But I would, I would assume, I guess, that if you were kind of being a minister in an area that was more affluent, Mm -hmm. those kinds of, that kind of rhetoric 
you wouldn't necessarily be using regularly yeah. because it's not going to be attaching yeah. to the yeah. people that yeah. you're yeah. speaking to because yeah. they're not suffering. Yeah. And so I think one of the questions for me is, I think we often see or, or perceive um, very strong denominational attachments for churches and ministers. And actually what I think I'm seeing in Hull is a geographical strength um, right. that actually they're, they're talking the same language. They might use different words. They might use biblical phrases in a different way, but they're very often expressing these same sort of things. And I'd love to tease out, you know, do you think everybody else in your, you know, your friends and your, you know, other bits yeah. of your denomination? There was one, you know, evangelical pastor who said, you know, when I moved to Hull, people were, you know, saying, oh, Hull, oh, why are you moving there? And how angry I got with them because this is a place that God loves. And, you know, so that real wanting to side with those, uh, with, with places of deprivation, or places that have been deprived, perhaps. Um, so yeah, so I think there's a sort of geographical coherence, and and that's in a way one of the things that sort of drew me to research in Hull because I, I worked across the Church of England, affluent areas, rural areas across the um, Yorkshire and Humber and, and Tees Valley area, and Hull was remarkable in its sense of um, ecumenical work, um, leaders from different denominations all working together in a way that you didn't see in a lot of other areas. Because right, I was about so, to ask that when you yeah. talked about how they were all working together, yeah. I was going to ask if they typically then would also work together if they were all kind of talking the same language. It, it is, uh, yes, it, it, I think that happens more in Hull than it does in, in, in the other places that I've, I've worked in. The other place where I saw similar um, behaviour was in Middlesbrough, which is in another very deprived city. So um, I think that has to be a feature of um, uh, of, of work in church work in deprived areas that it works best when you're yeah. all you know forget your denominational differences denominational differences you could almost argue are a, 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 a luxury <laughs> you know that actually right. that's something you know perhaps those denominational differences become stronger in more affluent areas where you can be utterly you know plant your Baptist flag or your you know your, your Anglican you know do things in very much your own distinctive way but actually in a deprived area to make a difference you've really just yeah. got all back so, together so when you're doing this research as a mm. theologian mm. how does this realization change the way that you are approaching the research i think it's meant that i'm coming at it much more from the angle of liberation theology which again wasn't so much a sort of um in in the foreground of my mind perhaps when i started this but as i'm seeing people using um using the patterns, using the, um, the themes of liberation theology, it's meant that I'm going into, uh, you know, reading liberation theologians a lot more. And um, I was reading a theologian recently who described the word um, context, the Latin word contextere, uh, means to weave or intertwine. Okay, that's interesting. And I thought that's quite interesting, and that sort of mirrors the work that I'm doing, I think, um, is letting, you know, if you think of things which are woven, woven cloth has a warp and a weft in it, a bit that goes down and a bit that goes across. And it feels at the moment that I'm taking the sort of the warp of, of people's experiences from Hull and interweaving that with theologians' work and seeing, you know, so where do these strands of liberation theology crop up? You know, how is contextual right, theology okay. used here? And, you know, and the... the um, sort of framework that my research is sitting in, I'm looking at the work of Stephen Bevins, who's a, a contextual theologian, um, who mapped different ways that 
um, Christians uh, relate faith and context together into these different models. And so I'm sort of using that as a framework, really, for looking at, at, at what I'm seeing in Hull and asking does that need to be extended in any way? <laughs> so um, it feels very early days with that at the moment, but, um, but there's definitely those strands of liberation theology coming through. So if, because I'm not, I'm not a theologian, yeah. but if, if, we, if we kind of take from this research, this whole kind of stepping away from, say, I'm studying Anglicans and, and this particular yeah. thing, um, how, how would that change the approach of theology, I guess for you specifically, but maybe more broadly speaking, of just theology from this point on? Yeah, I think, I think, I would think this, but I think the most important thing about theology and the way that theology is moving is that understanding that all theology is contextual. There is no pure theology separated from its context, whether you're a biblical scholar, uh, you know, a, a, a historical theologian, um, or, or looking at, at present times, that all theology comes from a context and is shaped by its context. Um, and I think the, the bit of theology that I'm really attracted to and that I think is an area where it needs to grow more and more and more and is growing more is in relation to work with the social sciences, is to say, if, theolo if, if theology is contextual, if it, if it comes from the ground up, we need to look at the ground. And social sciences have the best tools. So, you know, <laughs> you do, you do, you really do. Well done, social sciences. Um, but to say, you know, how can we use the tools of social sciences, anthropology, sociology, whatever it is, to study people and from that to understand their theological context and also to understand God. If you have a theological understanding that God is continually revealing God's self through the Holy Spirit, then actually we need to be paying attention to people because people and places is where we see God in action. And so if we want to understand God more as theologians, we need to be looking at people and understanding their behaviour and what their beliefs are, what their understandings are, um, the, 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 the burdens that they're holding up, what are the sufferings that they're holding, you know, because that is surely where God is at work. So I think for me, theology is at its most exciting when it is studying people and churches and, and working hand in glove with, with, um, with religious studies um, to understand people's behaviours and patterns of behaviours um, because that, that context will show us more and more about God, God in action. Well, it seems like that's, that's kind of like your particular research approach is mm. kind of already taking that under wing. Yeah. You know, when you were describing, you know, the your kind of picture use, I mean, that's used in certain forms yes. of anthropology. Yep. So, yep. you know, you're kind of already borrowing from the social sciences yes. in order yeah. to to apply this. When I, when I first started my PhD and I was looking at, you know, different places I might be, well, before I started, when I was looking at places I might be able to, um, to study, um, a potential supervisor said to me, so is your work more in theology or religious studies? And I remember thinking, oh, I don't really know, <laughs> because... <laughs> It is, it is 
theology because it presupposes a God and, mm-hmm. and starts from that perspective. But to me, theology is at its most exciting and most relevant when it works hand in glove with religious studies. I'm sure that you know religious studies sometimes would want to create an element of distance, but I think theology is stronger and stronger where it can work with people from different disciplines um, in the social sciences and, and learn from them, uh, listen and understand and, and read, and then take that good work back to theology and say, well, how do we use this in our context then? And that's one of the things I really love about the network is that chance to um, just spend time with people from so many different disciplines, from film studies, from uh, religious studies, from, gosh, so many different different fields and different backgrounds, and sit and listen to their work and their priorities and the way they go about things. Um, and yes, yeah, sometimes there are differences, and you think, oh no, no, I, I, you know, we wouldn't, I wouldn't want to go about it in that way. But sometimes there's so many similarities, and you think, oh, gosh, yes, that research is really exciting. Yes, that would have relevance here yeah. and here and here. Um, so for me, that's one of the real strengths of the network. So it allows yeah, so the, that uh, the network is the Theology and Religion Popular Culture Network for people listening at home. Um, and I'll have a link to the new website uh, in the show notes, which hopefully will be live by the time this comes out. Um, but yeah, and, and I think, personally, I think I've learned quite a lot about theology, because I... From in the U.S., theology does not exist at universities. Mm. So, um, you know, I was doing religious studies, and that's the only thing that was around me. And then when I came to the U.K., and I wasn't aware of this dichotomy and this stress, by the way, of these two groups. And I was very much against it, I think, when I joined and when I started, because I was just so not used to it. And I've gotten a little bit better about it. Um, <laughs> it's very good of you to sit here with me. I, you know, I do appreciate it. But I mean, and, and I think that there is a certain amount of, there are obviously, and, and this isn't the case just for theology. I mean, yeah. this is the case for religious studies as well, is when you get those, those much more older um, scholars that are a bit more set in their ways um, that aren't willing to kind of look at new things or yeah. new approaches yeah. or say, let's look at this other department yeah. and maybe figure yeah. out what they're doing. Yeah. That's where I think there's some issues um, and being able to realize and it's not just theology I mean studying popular culture in a religious studies context you encounter these problems yes. all the time yeah. and yeah. you know yeah. and I'm sure that other people and other departments encounter yeah. these problems and of these issues back and forth yeah. so yeah. Yeah. I think kind of realizing that sometimes it's it's kind of the the more stubborn people and that's just stubborn people in general it's not really really anything in particular that's the problem is just kind of stubborn people that and again that you've got that 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 practice of autoethnography that needs to take place that we all come to a study as a practitioner of it in some way or another <laughs> you yeah. know I, I, I'm, the, the hard sciences really aren't my cup of tea that was something I dropped as soon as I could but I, I'm, if I were a physicist I am still bound by the laws of gravity and they affect on my body in a way that you know they might affect on your body slightly differently you know different bone density I don't know yeah. whatever but we are all um, located in our studies and I think to pretend that we we are somehow above our field of study um, is a is a is a is a 
is a difficult thing and actually and I think that plays out particularly in religious studies where there is issues of um, sorry religious studies and theology when there's issues of being a practitioner or not a practitioner in something well we're all people who experience these things in one way or another yeah so if people are more interested in your research um, and knowing more about you is there any place that they could go yes I have a blog, which you can find on the link below, because I can't remember its URL. Yeah, and it, it hasn't been updated for months, but um, I'm oh, sorry, I have a blog yeah. that hasn't been updated in months. That's the first thing that'll be updated in months yes. will be this podcast. Yes. So. Um, so yes, my blog, and I'm on Twitter as well. Okay. Well, thank you for um, taking time out of your busy, hole-filled day in order to come and talk to me. It's absolutely fascinating, and um, I'll love to talk to you more about it in about a year. Yeah, next conference. Yeah, I'll meet you next conference. Thank you for listening to the Religion and Popular Culture podcast. If you want to know more about Eleanor Course, you can follow her on Twitter at Ellie Course, and that's Ellie with two L's. If you also want to follow her blog, you can find that at religionculturephd.wordpress.com. If you want to know more about me, you can follow me on Twitter at Vivian Asimos, and you can also check out the website god-mode.org, which is where all of the podcasts are being hosted. Next time, we'll be talking to Lucinda Murphy, who will be telling us all about her work on Christmas. And the idea is that the elf comes to visit the entirety of December um, and is watching the children's behaviour um, to report back to Father Christmas. So it's kind of hmm, a bit like 1984. <laughs> so stay tuned for that and see you soon.